Amen. If you have your Bibles, would you take them out today and turn to the book of 1 Timothy, chapter 1. 1 Timothy, chapter 1. If you're the type who has a, a bookmark in your Bible that keeps track of where you are, I'd encourage you to stick it in 1 Timothy. We're going to be there for a little while. We are beginning today a new series. We're going to walk just straight through the books of First and Second Timothy together as a church and hear what the, the word of these books has to say to us, the church. And so today we're going to begin with sort of a broad introduction of what is this book, First Timothy, as well as Second Timothy. What are these letters that Paul has written? Who are they for and what do they teach us? And we're going to do so by means of looking at the first two verses in First Timothy chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. And I'll ask if you're able, would you join me in standing for the reading of God's word this morning? First Timothy 1 Timothy 1.1 Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope, to Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Let's pray one more time. Father, this is your word given to your church for our edification, for our correction, our encouragement, for our training in righteousness. Lord, will your spirit now apply these words that you have given in, and apply them to our hearts that we might walk in truth with much love and much faith. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Well, as we begin looking at 1 Timothy, this book, uh, it is part of what is called the pastoral epistles. If we took three books together, 1 Timothy 2 Timothy and Titus, these three have often been called the pastoral epistles because they are letters or epistles that have been written to pastors. Uh, whereas most of Paul's 13 books that he wrote in the New Testament are directed to churches to be read as congregations as a whole, these letters are directed primarily to pastors. Timothy and Titus were both pastors. They were protégés of Paul that he had entrusted the faith to, and he has committed them to churches in order to stay and to serve these churches. Uh, and so you notice that this one is directed to Timothy. But one thing that we notice as we read First Timothy is that, that you get this feeling as you're going along that it's not just for Timothy. If it were just for Timothy, we might not know what to do with it. We might say, okay, this is a letter that's written to a pastor, so this is a great book for pastors to read, but what does it have to do with the rest of us? But we learn as we read, he's not just talking to Timothy. Paul has in mind that this is a letter that will be read not only by Timothy, but it will be read by the churches that he is pastoring. In fact, we, we get to the end of the book, and, and he sort of outs himself in the very last verse of chapter 6, verse 21. The very last thing he says, grace be with you. That word, you, is plural. We can't tell that in the English, but it's obvious in the Greek that he's saying grace be with all of you. He knows that it's not just Timothy who's reading this. It's Timothy's church here in Ephesus that he is pastoring. The whole church is sort of reading over Timothy's shoulder, as it were, because they also need to know these instructions for the churches. If Paul is giving to Timothy his word of how to pastor a church, what do you do in a church? How do you lead in a church? What ought the church to be doing? What are the sorts of things the church ought to be up to, and what are the sorts of things it ought not to be up to? that these are matters that concern not only the pastor, but the entire church. And so we know 
The church is looking over Timothy's shoulder as we read these books. And Paul knows that. That's a good thing. Paul has that in mind the entire time, that he's writing to Timothy, but he's also writing to the church. He's writing to the church of how they are to live and to behave and to protect their doctrine. If you turn over real quick to chapter 3, verses 14 and 15, Paul gives us the reason he's writing this letter. Look at chapter 3, verse 14. Paul says, I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. So here, he he gives us his, his whole reasoning here. He has commissioned Timothy to stay at this church in Ephesus, Timothy is pastoring the same church that the book of Ephesians was written to. He's there in Ephesus, and and Paul says, I've sent you to Ephesus to pastor. I'm hoping to come too. That's my desire, is that I will come and I will help and I will pastor alongside you. But I'm writing this just in case, in case I get delayed or I have to wait or something comes up. I'm writing it in a letter so that you know, so you don't have to wait for me, but that you will know, as he says, how one ought to behave in the household of God. And so that's what we have in 1 Timothy. These are Paul's instructions for how one ought to behave in the household of God. It is his instructions for the church. And that's why so many people find these books of 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy and Titus to be so practical, to be so useful, to find them to be very down-to-earth for us, because they're Paul's instructions. This is a book that's telling us, how do we live in the church? How ought we to get along together? How do we protect our doctrine? Who is qualified to be an elder or a deacon? How do we treat the widows in the church? These are very practical, down-to-earth issues that Paul is going to deal with throughout 1 Timothy. I was thinking, as I was planning for this sermon series, if I had to give a title to the whole series as a whole, this was the title I wanted. An Ordinary Church is a Beautiful Thing. An Ordinary Church is a Beautiful Thing because we read 1 Timothy, and it's very down-to-earth. It's very down-to-earth. It's very ordinary. The instructions that he gives are just the practical, everyday matters that we deal with as a church. And yet, it's a beautiful thing to be a part of the church. The church is a beautiful, majestic thing that's filled with glory. Look at how he describes it in chapter 3, verse 15. He says that one might know how to behave in the household of God. This, the church, the gathering, is the household of God. He wants us to recognize here the true nature of what the church is. What, what is this thing when we gather together on Sundays for corporate worship as the body of Christ? What is this thing? He, he will tell us it's not just a, another social club. This is not just another common interest group, not just a, another social organization for the betterment of the community. This is different. This is a supernaturally defined thing. This is the church Uh, Well, he says, the household of God. We are the family of God. And therefore, this whole letter takes on a new importance because the behavior in the household of God takes on a new significance. That we're not just another club that finds ourselves having common interests and so we gather together once a week to, to share those and to fellowship and to practice our interests. This is God's household. And so when false teachers come into God's household... Paul takes that very seriously. Takes that very seriously because it's not just another social organization. He recognizes what the church is. And then he adds, it's the household of God. It's the church of the living God. 
there is in fact something amazing and supernatural that happens when we gather together for worship. That we are in the presence of the living God. The church of the living God to differentiate the church of God from all the other religious organizations that were around in his day and are still around in our day. This is the church of the living God. And therefore, again, he takes it seriously. I mentioned this last week, and I want to say it again. I'll probably say it again in the future. That worship is not primarily about giving or receiving, but about being. Yes, there is, there is giving. We come and we give of ourselves. We give of our voice and our praise to God, of our tithes and our gifts and our talents as we serve the church. Yes, there is receiving. We come and we receive encouragement from God's word and teaching from the scriptures and we receive encouragement from our fellowship. But primarily what this is about is being in the presence of God, experiencing fellowship with Jesus Christ, our Savior, our covenant Lord who meets with us as the church of the living God. We just look around this room and we recognize there's something more here than happens at any other gathering during the week because this is the presence of God in this place, the church of the living God. We just look at the call to worship that we heard today from 1 Peter chapter 2. In verse 9, he says, You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. What a description of who we are. What a description to realize that this is what the church is. And, and so this description of the church is what undergirds and gives significance to everything in First Timothy. Uh, it's, it's been sort of said over the years that people look down on First Timothy as just being sort of an ordinary, boring, run-of-the-mill letter. It doesn't soar to the same heights of theology that you find in the book of Romans or Ephesians or Hebrews or First Peter, these very grandiose theological treatises. 1 Timothy, by contrast, is ordinary. It talks about how uh, elders and deacons shouldn't be addicted to a lot of wine. It talks about how to treat widows, and not only that, but some detailed instructions. This is how you set up the list of which widows should be cared for. It's very ordinary stuff. But it's given an immense weight of significance when we recognize that it's instructions for the church of the living God, the household of God, a holy nation, a royal priesthood, that this is what makes the church so important, is that the local church is the hope of the world. That was the conviction that drove Bill Hybels when he first planted his church in Chicago 30-some-odd years ago now. He said his main conviction, the reason he wanted to plant a church, he didn't want to go into any other sort of business or any other sort of ministry, but he said the local church, the gathering on Sundays of God's people, that's the hope of the world because that is where the gospel is proclaimed week in and week out. That's where God's people gather together for corporate worship and fellowship with Christ to, to praise him, to renew our covenant with him, to be fed by him. That's where his spirit promises to dwell. He said this, what we do, the local church, is the hope of the world. We look around the world and we see all sorts of issues and problems that we face today and it seems in the last few weeks there have been more than our fair share of them. We say, what, what will help? What will solve our problems? Will it be another Political leader, do we just need to, to sort out the bad apples and get the right people in place? Do we just need the right organizations to be well-funded and the wrong organizations to, to, to get off the scene? We say, no, the hope is this, that the local church still exists by the grace of God and by the power of the Spirit it will continue to exist 
continue to proclaim the lordship of Christ over every area of life. It is the hope of the world. And he adds again in verse 15, it's the household of God, it's the church of the living God. It's also a pillar and buttress of the truth. One commentary I read said, this is the most significant phrase in all of the pastoral epistles, that the church is the pillar and buttress of the truth. It's the protector of the truth of the gospel. He says that explains 1 Timothy. Why is it so important? What is at stake in the way the church behaves? What's the big deal if a few things aren't done exactly how Paul would like them to be done? What exactly is at stake in the way we go about choosing leaders and elders and deacons? What's at stake in the way that men and women relate to one another in the church? He said exactly this, that the church is the pillar and the buttress of the truth. It's the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ that is at stake. And it's the job of the church to reflect the truth of the gospel to a watching world. And therefore, the way that we organize and the way that we lead and the way that we behave in the household of God is of utmost significance because we're dealing with the church of the living God. That's what makes 1 Timothy such a marvelous book, such an awe-inspiring book, is that, that he is teaching us how to behave in the household of God, how to be good citizens of the church of Jesus Christ because the church is charged with this duty, the proclamation and defense of the gospel. When things go wrong in a church, it reflects poorly on the gospel. It reflects poorly on Christ. And so we are encouraged, we are persuaded to give thought and give weight to Paul's instructions for us in 1 Timothy. Now let's go back to chapter 1 and get back to our text, chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. And I want us to see, in light of that, what does the church need? And I think Paul gives us two things. The church needs the authority of Christ and the church needs the mercy of Christ. As the church of the living God, the household of God, we need the authority of Christ and we need the mercy of Christ. I know it's tempting for us to skip over these greetings. These are just formalities. We we always want to just start reading in verse 3, but we should not do that. This is the word of God to us that's inspired for our teaching and correcting and training in righteousness. And so it is here. And often what we see in Paul's greetings in these letters is they're not purely formulaic. They feel formulaic, but they're not. Paul oftentimes will use them as a way to introduce what are the themes that are going to be important in this particular letter. And so it is here. First, he introduces the theme of the church needing the authority of Christ. Look at verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the command of God our Savior, and of Christ Jesus our hope. Paul, he introduces himself here as Paul, and we won't spend much time talking about his biography or the details of his life. He himself will give us some of those details down in chapter, or verses 12 through 17. And so we'll do that a bit when we get to those verses. But he says he's an apostle of Christ Jesus. He's an apostle. That's pretty standard fare for Paul to introduce himself as an apostle. Out of the 13 letters he wrote in the New Testament, nine of them, he introduces himself as an apostle of Christ Jesus. But it's also very significant. That's, there's a reason, after all, that he says it in nine of those letters is because it's significant. An apostle is one who is sent by Christ. An apostle is one who is commissioned by Christ, sent with the authority of Christ, sent to proclaim the message of Christ. 
So for Paul to identify himself as an apostle is to identify himself as one who speaks now in the name of Jesus and with the authority of Jesus. Now why is that important in 1 Timothy? Well, it's important partly because it adds a a new level of authority to what he writes to us in this book, but it's more pointed than that. It's more pointed than just the authority that he gains by saying his title. It has to do with the very nature of the church itself. After all, we've just said what the church is, that it's not just a a social group or a common interest group. It's the household of God. Jesus is the head of the church. Jesus is the chief shepherd of the church. Jesus will always be the senior pastor of the church. It's not just an organization. it's, It's God's own dwelling. And that means that only God and only through Christ does he have the authority to speak authoritatively to the church. He identifies himself as an apostle as a way of saying he has authority from Christ to speak authoritatively to the church. Because only Christ has the authority to teach. One of the main issues that we're going to deal with for several weeks in 1 Timothy is the issue of false teachers. That there are false teachers, men who are rising up to teach the church who don't care anything about Jesus and they don't care anything about the gospel. They don't know good doctrine and they don't care about teaching good doctrine. They're not interested in what God says in his word. These are men who are coming into the church who have some new ideas of what they would like to see the church do and be. They have some new goals for the church that they would like us to reorganize around and they want to set some new values for the church. And they don't care about the goals of Jesus. And they are false teachers. Paul actually says in Acts 20, verse 29, after he had spent three years in Ephesus on his uh, missionary journey, Acts 20, 29, he's speaking to the elders of the church and he says, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. So Paul knew this was going to happen. He knew this would happen, that false teachers would come into the church at Ephesus, and he was right. He was right. They have come. So now we see 1 Timothy uh, chapter 1, verse 3. He says, As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus. Why? So that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. That's part of his charge, is to teach is to charge persons not to teach false doctrine. He says it again in chapter 1, verse 6. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussions, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. False teachers coming into the church. Again in chapter 6, verse 3, he says, If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. It's a significant issue for the church at Ephesus that they have false teachers who are teaching a different gospel. And it's been true of the church in every age that there are people who would like to come into the church, would like to hijack the church and co-opt it for their own purposes. They have their own goals and desires They want to use it as their own tool for accomplishing their own ends. And so they teach different doctrine. But Paul will say over and over again, the church has one clear purpose. To glorify God through the salvation of sinners. That is why the church exists. What he says of himself in chapter 1, verse 15. 
says, This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. That's the, that's the reason for the church's existence. For chapter 4, verse 16, Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing you will save both yourself and your hearers. That's what Timothy is to be about, guarding the doctrine of the church in order to give God glory through the salvation of sinners. That's the purpose of the church, and that is the charge that Paul gives to Timothy. And so it is important to us then and to them that Paul is an apostle because he comes with the authority of Christ to speak to the church. He says he's an apostle by the command of God our Savior in Christ Jesus, our hope. His apostleship even is not his own doing. It's from God. It's by the command of God. God himself has given Paul as an apostle to the church. And he says in verse 2, Now to Timothy, my true child in the faith. To Timothy, my true child in the faith. Now, here he expresses a good bit of fatherly affection towards Timothy, and it could be when he says here that Timothy is his true child in the faith that it is simply an expression of fatherly affection. That certainly would not be out of place. What we know about Timothy from the scriptures is that he was a, a confidant of Paul, a, a co-worker of Paul. He stood side by side with Paul and ministered alongside Paul for a long time. Paul met Timothy on his second, second missionary journey. He immediately had Timothy circumcised so he could take him with him as he was ministering to the churches. And from the beginning, Timothy appears to be a very gifted preacher and a skilled leader of the church. One commentary says, Timothy is Paul's first lieutenant. When there were difficulties that would arise in the churches, more than once Paul would send Timothy, his trusted companion. He put enough faith in Timothy that he would send Timothy to a very difficult situation, to a church in which there were many problems. He sent him to uh, the church in Thessalonica when they were having problems. Paul sent Timothy. And he records in 1 Timothy 3.6 that he got a good report when Timothy came back to him. When the church in Corinth was having problems, Paul sent Timothy, we know from 1 Corinthians 4.17. That was a church with all sorts of issues, and he sent Timothy to them. He says in the book of Philippians that he hoped to send Timothy to the church at Philippi. He said, I have no one like him. He was planning to send Timothy. Here he sent him to the church in Ephesus to help them when they are beset by false teaching and when they are by heresies distressed. He's also mentioned as a co-author of six books, 2 Corinthians, 1 and 2 Thessalonians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon. Paul, in giving his opening salutation, lists Timothy as a co-author there with him. And so Timothy, of course, he's a, a good, trusted, faithful co-worker of Paul. And he says, my child, my true child in the faith. But again, he could be saying something a little more than that, not only expressing his affection for Timothy. What he's saying here is that Timothy is now going to a church that's filled with false teachers. Who has Paul's backing? He says, Timothy is my true or legitimate, genuine child in the faith. Which means for this church, as they're sort of reading over Timothy's shoulder, reading this, they see, ah, this is what Paul would say to Timothy, that Timothy is the one who represents Paul's doctrine accurately and faithfully. Timothy then is the one who is commissioned by Paul to uh, correct and to rebuke the false teachers and to charge them not to continue teaching. Paul here is deputizing Timothy to stay. 
and to teach in the church. He's hoping to come himself, but until he gets there, it's Timothy to whom the church is to listen. Because the church is the household of God, we need nothing less than the authority of Christ in the church, which is why we as a church will always commit ourselves to being a Bible-loving, Bible-believing, Bible-teaching, Bible-preaching church. Because we need the authority of Christ, and that comes today to his church through the scriptures. So we will always be committed to following the scriptures, submitting ourselves humbly to the scriptures, never allowing us to teach anything that's at variance with the scriptures. When we have a difference, we submit. We say the Bible is our final authority for life and for practice, for all doctrine that we teach at our church. We need the authority of Christ. But also we need the mercy of Christ. We need the authority of Christ in our church. We also need the mercy of Christ in our church. The end of verse 2 here Paul writes, Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. So if he's said at first, we need the authority, we need the authoritative teaching of Christ, this is the content. That's the channel that comes from Christ. Here's the content of what we hear from Christ. We need the gospel. We need the grace of Christ, the mercy of Christ. We need the peace with God from Christ. I think this is Paul's prayer right up front for Timothy, for this church, is that they will know these, that they will know the grace of God, the mercy from God, the peace with God through Christ Jesus, our Lord. Now, he says three things here, grace, mercy, and peace, but I think the emphasis is on the middle word, mercy. Because we we know that Paul always opens with a greeting that's something like this. It, It does become somewhat familiar after a while. But when there's a difference to it, when he changes it just a little bit, that becomes significant. And what does Paul usually open his letters with? Usually he says grace and peace. Grace and peace is his standard greeting, but this time grace, mercy, and peace. Only 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy does he add mercy to his greeting. So why mercy? Why would he add that to this church? And I think there's two reasons. First, he knows the church needs God's mercy in salvation. This ties in with what Paul will uh, develop down below in chapter 1, his own testimony in terms of receiving the mercy of Christ. Listen to verse 13, how he identifies himself. Remember, he's writing to a church that's filled with false teachers, and he says, I, formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And down in verse 16, I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. You see, Paul himself used to be an insolent opponent of the church, a persecutor of it. And now he's writing to Timothy, saying, Timothy, you have insolent opponents in this church. How do you deal with those insolent opponents? I used to be one. How do you deal with them? well, you're going to need the mercy of Christ. Because when I was an insolent opponent, that's what dealt with me. God dealt with me through his mercy, offered in Christ Jesus. I formerly was a blasphemer, but I received mercy. And so this is Timothy's strategy now. He's not to come into this church as a heavy-handed dictator who's supposed to lay down the law. He's supposed to come with the mercy of Christ on full offer all those in the church and to lay down not the law but he's to lay down the gospel in this difficult church situation that's filled with 
with distress and false teaching and, and, and all sorts of problems, he is to come preaching the gospel of the mercy of Jesus Christ. I think he's trying to remind Timothy here that, listen, you're going into a difficult church where there's all sorts of false teachers, and that seems very intimidating, but remember, no one is ever too lost to be saved. Don't look on these people and categorize them simply as enemies because of the false teaching. Categorize them as those who are in need of the mercy of Christ. And remember that the mercy of Christ is powerful to bring people to God. Look at Paul. He himself is a trophy of God's mercy. So they need the mercy of God and salvation. They also need this, God's sustaining, preserving mercy for his church. God's sustaining and preserving mercy for his church. Throughout the Bible, the mercy of God is that character trait of God which moves him to pity his people in their distress to be faithful to them, even when they are not being faithful to him. It's that characteristic of God that that moves him to love his people even when they're going astray. It's that characteristic of God that causes him to be merciful to sinners who don't deserve it because they have gotten themselves into a mess through their own choices and their own sins. But he is, at heart, a merciful God. He is a merciful God and a loving Father, a faithful God, and he will still protect and sustain his church against all threats. Remember when the the people of Israel had gotten themselves in the mess with the golden calf and and then God renews his covenant with his people and he says, this is who I am, the Lord, the Lord, merciful and gracious. I think he's saying, now Timothy, you're going into a situation that's going to feel a lot like that. This church is all, all messed up with false teachers. It's going to feel like a golden calf, but remember, the Lord is merciful. The Lord does not give up on his people. No matter how much they may try to mess themselves up and go astray, the Lord is merciful and faithful. What does Timothy need to hear? He needs this encouragement that the hope of the church is not on having the best pastor, Timothy, come. Sure, that must have been nice, but the hope is in the mercy of God. The hope of the church is in Christ and his grace, mercy, and peace for his people. The hope of the, Christ is, uh, the, hope of the church is the faithfulness of God, that God never gives up on his people, that he who did not spare his only son, but gave him up for us all, how will he also, along with him, graciously give us all things? And so, church, this is for us, to remember the mercy of God. To remember the mercy of God. And when you are discouraged by life, remember, your hope is not in yourself. Your hope is not in your circumstances. Your hope is in the merciful character of God, that he loves you and cares for you, walks along you when you're discouraged by your own sin, your own shortcomings, your own lack of progress and spiritual maturity, and it gets you down, remember it's God's mercy that is all of our hope, that he is merciful and faithful. When you are overwhelmed by evil in the world, and the last few weeks it seems like it's been rampant and there's been easy opportunities for discouragement by the evil in the world, remember this, God's mercy is abundant and overflowing for his people that Christ's grace is greater than all the evil in the world. What is our hope? Our hope is in his mercy. Some, O church, trust in horses, and some trust in chariots, but we trust in the name of the Lord, our God. 
He is gracious. He is merciful. Through Christ, we have peace with that God, and he is the hope of the church. Let's pray together. Our God and Heavenly Father, who is gracious and merciful, abounding in steadfast mercy, slow to anger, we thank you for your mercy to your church. We thank you for Christ. We thank you that even when we are faithless, you remain faithful, for you cannot deny yourself. Father, we pray, will you draw our eyes ever more to Christ Jesus our Lord, that we might find much encouragement and great hope for the task that you have laid before us. And Father, may we walk always in his mercy, clinging to Christ, not trusting in ourselves, not trusting in our goodness or our cleverness, but only in the mercy of Jesus Christ our Savior. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.